Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. The one in whose blood we are washed, we're cleansed. Lord, as we come to you, we recognize that your spirit is at work amongst your people. Strengthening them. Forming them. Directing them to you. We pray for this service of worship. We pray for this time that your spirit would be, in, be at work in us, guiding us, directing us, that we would be people marked by a growing love for you and a growing obedience to your word, not as the basis of deeds done in righteousness, but as a fruit of the work of your Spirit. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Some of my favorite passages within the Scriptures are the but God passages. They're scattered about, Old Testament and New. They're not in every chapter of every book, but, but the but God passages. And if you don't know what I mean by the but God passages, I mean that they're, they're passages that contain the words but God. And usually, before the but God is a, is a statement of fact, uh, or, or perhaps it's a, a trajectory that, you know, some, like a, in, a, in, in a narrative, you know, someone's going along in a particular way, and usually that way is quite awful, and it leads to damnation, but God. And at the time when we see but God, the Lord enters into this narrative into the situation in a way that is significant and the outcomes are different than what we might have otherwise thought. I'll give you an example of, of one of these. It's in Ephesians 2. Uh, you know, we read verses 8 through 10 a little bit earlier, just a moment ago, and that is kind of the conclusion of the good part of the but God. But we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 2. And listen to the, the situation that Paul is describing. It's rather bleak. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We understand in these verses that the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, is making a case against guilty sinners. This is not as though you know, the, the evil one who's called the, the great accuser, right, is hurling accusations, whether they're true or not, and just going to see what sticks. This is the Lord making a statement of the guilt of God's people before they come to know the Lord. In these verses... is our death. Were these verses true of us, there is nothing we can do. This is, if we think about this as evidence, like in, in a court case, this is the sort of stuff that happens at the end of the hour when you're watching Perry Mason, and Perry Mason has the, the witness dead to rights. If you're a little bit younger and you don't know who Perry Mason is, it's like Matlock but older. 
And if you don't know what Matlock is, I'm sorry, you just don't know what good television is, right? So, um, but nonetheless, no, I mean, this is, this is the statement, this is, this is kind of the end of the hour when, when the guilty party is shown to be guilty, as we all are, but God, but God. And in, in this, we see that, that Paul says to the Ephesians, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And he goes on. But it's a but God. This is the reality of our life, and we are headed for destruction, but God. And we're made alive. Titus 3, 1 through 7, is another one of those but God passages. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. We, we've already seen that there's some overlap between Titus and Ephesians, and Titus and Timothy, who was ministering in Ephesus. Uh, but none, and it, I mean, we even see that there's some language that overlaps. But this but God passage is one that's often overlooked. Whether commentators or casual readers, we sometimes either jump to the ethical demands of the text, which is fine, and I mean, there are those, or we, we kind of think about what, what does this mean, that we, we see the, the renewal of the Holy Spirit and, and that at work, and, and that's good too, but we sometimes miss that this is one of those passages that shows us our sin. And in showing us our sin helps us understand the magnitude of God's grace. Now, in these verses, Paul is going to call uh, Titus and the Cretans through Titus to certain standards of behavior. But he's going to root those standards of behavior in the kindness of God that has redeemed his people. As we think about those commands, we recognize that they are still present for us today. And as we've been saying through the book of Titus, they are to serve as a witness for the wider community, the wider culture. These ethical imperatives, then, are just that. They're imperatives. They're, they're to say that Paul, speaking through Titus, is saying, do these things, both to the Cretans and to us. And if we were to summarize them, we would say that, that here, the Lord is saying that we are to show the love of God, the kindness of our Savior, to our culture. We're to do so with truth, or in, you know, with compassion, with a godly kindness, and we're to do so obeying those that the Lord has put in authority over us. Now, as we think about what that would look like, as we think about how we would honor a, a leader and, and recognize that the church is called to push against the culture, we need to remember the culture that Titus is working with. Uh, we see, you know, here just in the text, he starts by saying, remind them again to be subject to these authorities. And as we think about that, we need to recognize this isn't the only place that we're called to, to obey authorities, but there are certain characteristics here that are, shall I say, unusual. What we might think about is, or what we might expect, I should say, is that the Lord says, 
you know, through one of the, the scripture writers, you know, honor your authorities by obeying them, listening to what they say. But that's not, I mean, that's present, but that's not primarily the sort of word that is used here. Paul is saying through Titus that the Cretan Christians are to be obedient, yes, but they're to be ready for every good deed. They're to malign no one. They're to be peaceable, gentle. These are characteristics of the heart. Attitudes, if you will. And in this regard, this list, this, this command to, to obey our, our leaders has something in common with the Sermon on the Mount. We remember, right, as Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says, you have heard it said, and then a, a portion of the law, like for instance, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. And we understand that, that his hearers would have understood that they had completed that or not completed that based upon their actions. So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder, the audience would have said, yep, got that, haven't murdered anyone. But we've, what we've already talked about is that Jesus pushes that sin and helps his audience understand how the sin of the action of anger is tied to the emotion or the attitude of anger, right? That, that, that murder is tied to anger. And therein, those who say, well, I haven't killed anybody, understand that they're still guilty. And I think that, that Titus here has something of the same thing going on, where Paul is calling Titus to obey the leaders, not just in the actual activities that they call you to, but also there needs to be an internal attitude of humility, an internal attitude of gentleness. doesn't mean we always have to agree, but it does mean that it needs to be there. As we then reflect upon the ways in which we respond to our own authorities, we, you know, again, we might first say, well, I'm you know, a law-abiding citizen. I, I do what I'm supposed to. But we have to ask ourselves, do we follow the words of Scripture? Do we act peaceably? Do we act with gentleness? Do we malign people? I mean, as I reflect on my own speech, as I, as I think about uh, the, the speech within our wider culture and within the wider Christian culture, when I see social media posts, it makes me a bit uncomfortable because I don't think we always follow Paul's directives here. But we also need to recognize who Paul is speaking to and where they are living, right? He's not calling the, the Cretan people who are living in Egypt... He's saying, you, you Cretan people who are living in Crete, you need to follow your leaders. Humbly follow them. And if we think about it, that poses a problem. Titus 1.12, again, makes clear. All Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That includes the people who are in charge. So if our society is marked by such a colorful description, and and individuals have been saved by God's grace, poured out through the Lord Jesus, from that culture, how can they humbly follow the, the rules of the society? 
that are comprised of those who reject the Lord? That's a difficult question. And I think as he's doing it, Paul is calling us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Now, let's think about this first for our own culture, and and then we'll kind of tease out how it is that Paul is working through this. For the past couple weeks, I've been suggesting that our culture is a materialistic, hedonistic culture that is built and, and bent on control. And what I mean by that, that's a shorthand, but what I mean by that is that our culture is consumed with the, the things and the experiences of life. And that if we can't see it, if we can't touch it, taste it, smell it, measure it, it doesn't exist. That's the materialist part. And we use those things and experiences for pleasure, for seeking out the greatest amount of pleasure that we can find. That's the hedonist part. And we have an understanding within our culture that the individual alone has the authority and power to determine what is right. That's the control bit. As we think about that being our culture, that's not all that different from liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. How are we to respond to it? And I find that there are typically two ways in which we respond negatively, meaning not well. Uh, The first is to recognize that like the Cretan people, we are born in our culture. I I don't mean that to be like a truism, but, but we're all in the culture that we have been saved from. Often that means that as the Lord Jesus saves us, as, as we, we come to profess faith in Christ, our hearts, our actions, our attitudes are still committed to the culture. For our own, that would mean seeking the world's goods and seeking pleasure and not giving a fig for what the Lord might say. And when we, we come to accept the Lord, often what we do is we live a life where six and a half days of the week we we pursue that sort of lifestyle, and the other half a day we say, you know what, we've sinned. We need to find absolution. Let's go to the church. If I just worship in the church service, you know, at the end of it, the, the, the pastor's gonna pronounce the benediction, and that warms our hearts. And we say, I'm okay. If that's our view of of grace, and if that's our view of the way in which we respond to society, it's kind of like eating junk food and then trying to take a vitamin and expecting a healthy outcome. Poor analogy, but it kind of works, right? We live off of Twinkies, because Twinkies are Twinkies, and we have vitamins once a week, and we say, all right, we're okay. And we recognize that that won't work. Looking at this room, judging by numbers, right, I recognize that the probability would say that, that some are fit that description. Where though, though they claim to follow the Lord Jesus, their lifestyle reflects the culture, at least most of the time. And if that is the case for you, I encourage you to look to the Lord who has redeemed you. 
look to the cross and the cost of that grace. But there's another error on the other side of the issue, and that's for those that have rejected the culture, right? Uh, you know, maybe it's uh, your personality, maybe it is your, um, just the family in which you, you grew up, but, but you have a paradoxical response that means you do the opposite. And, and maybe not just being contrary, but as the culture kind of pursues the pleasure that it can get from the things that it has, you say, I'm not going to do that. Likely, you know, you, you, you're, if that describes you, you're a person who works hard, you, you abstain from the things that you don't think are right, and you, you have an ordered life. When the gospel comes to such an individual, often the response is, now I get it. Now I understand why I'm different. You, you look at, at the, the world, you see the craziness of the world, and you say, now I understand why the world is crazy. Now I understand why I don't like it. It's because I'm a Christian. But if we're not careful, if that's our attitude, that can be a source of pride. And the logic is easy to understand. You look at the world, you say it's going to hell in a handcart. As the Lord Jesus redeems you from that, as you, as you go in a different direction, you say, thank you, Lord, that I am not part of that wider culture. Thank you, Lord, that, that I am not descending to hell in a handcart, as it were. that often produces catastrophic effects within our hearts. What do I mean? I have uh, little doubt that in this past year, you have all, to one degree or another, experienced a situation where an authority that the Lord has placed over you has issued a mandate or a decree or a suggestion or a law or however it is that you don't agree with. I think we could probably fill reams. Unless you've been buried under a rock for 18 months, there have likely been things that you found irksome. How do we respond? Are we someone who hears the edict that comes down, and we say, whether it's out loud or just in our hearts, I can't believe that idiot would do or say such a thing. Or do we say, I don't agree with that. I don't understand where that decision comes from. I, I, I'm wrestling with trying to figure it out. Still don't agree with it, but I understand that that is the rule. If we respond in the first way, where we cast aspersions... On, a, on the sanity or the personality of our leaders, we're not understanding what Titus is being called to. We're not understanding what the people of Crete are being called to. It's an example of, of our following, perhaps, the, the letter of the law, but in our hearts, maligning others not being gentle, not showing every consideration.
if that's where we are, we need to look to the Lord Jesus. So whichever side of this kind of issue that you might fall on, whether you're someone who has embraced the culture and tried to say Jesus plus the culture, or whether you're someone who has totally rejected the culture, and then when you find Jesus you say, thank you Lord that I am not like those sinners. In either event, we need to look to the cross. Why do we do that? That is part of the, the but God of our passage, right? We, we, we see this in verse 3 when, when Paul talks about the, the way in which the Cretans were, it's, and he lumps himself in with them. He said, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. He then goes on with but God. But when the kindness of our Savior has appeared, He saved us. What Paul is doing here, again, whichever side of the, the, the issue we might fall on, he's saying, look to the Savior. Recognize the work of the Lord Jesus. Now, why might he do that? I think it's because as we look at the cross, if our minds are full of hedonistic pleasure, when we truly look at the cross, we see that the grace that we say is free grace is free to us, but is not free. It costs something. It costs the blood of the Lamb. It costs the blood of the Lamb for us. And if we rightly understand that, by the power of the Spirit, we don't consider, continue to pursue hedonism. We don't continue to pursue our, our pleasure wherever we want. We don't act like our culture. But on the other hand, if our personality has produced uh, with the gospel a superiority to uh, the culture, or an understanding that we're superior to the culture, as we look to the cross, what do we see? That we are just as guilty as all. And the same Jesus who died for the one who's sinfully pursuing pleasure also died for the one who is sinfully prideful and arrogant as he views the culture. As we then think about this saving that happens in Titus 3, we see an interesting mechanism of, of the way in which it happens. It's not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Verse 5 points out that it is by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus saves us by the, this washing of regeneration. That means we're cleansed by His blood. And because I'm 36 going on about 427, there's a, there's a hymn that I, I find amazing, and it helps us understand this part. It's, it's written by William Cooper, and it, it's the first lines of the, the hymn, There is a Fountain. It says this, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. 
right? That, that's what it means to have the washing of regeneration. So, so as we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we are now made alive in Christ, ironically, through the death of a Savior, where we are washed in His blood. But we don't just see that, we also see that in this mechanism of our salvation, that we are being renewed by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul writes about this in a couple of different ways. Um, he writes about it in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and also in, earlier in the book. And there, he says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. In essence, that's just a restatement of what he says to Titus, talking about the deeds done in righteousness. No, we're saved by the, the grace of God. Uh, but we also understand that in Ephesians, Paul describes the work of the Spirit as being a seal for Christians, as a down payment of all the things that are to come. The Spirit then is future-looking in His coming. Both in Titus and in Ephesians, the Spirit is given to enable God's people to grow in obedience to the Lord. We see this in Ephesians 2, verse 10. You're saved by grace. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. But as you're saved by grace, we recognize that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand. In Titus, he uses the language of being renewed by the Holy Spirit. Renewed for what? Well, it's that we've gone from being dead to now being alive. Part of that renewing of the Holy Spirit means we're now enabled to live. Dead people can't live. I mean, we understand that, that they're physically alive, spiritually dead, but, but they can't live and please the Lord. But we understand that when the Spirit comes, He enables us to live for the Lord. So what then do we do? How do we live in a culture that is materialistic, hedonistic, control-oriented? How, how do the Cretans live in a culture that is full of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons? How should, how should we even think about proceeding? I think Psalm 130 provides an excellent picture for this. Again, this is a psalm that is sung, or what would have been sung, as the Israelites were going up to worship the Lord, and it begins in a right place that we all, to some degree, need to have a recognition of. It says this, Out of the depths of woe I cried to you, O Lord. In short, what? A acknowledging our sin, our sinfulness. The, the fact that we do not have a standing with the Lord. We're broken because of our sin. And there, then, the, the psalmist writes something rather profound. He says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? Now, Hebrews uh, chapter 2 also describes that. We don't have time to look at that. But, but I'll, I'll just say it this way. If it were my job in life, 
to follow you around and to record everything that you did wrong. One, it would probably be awkward in social settings. To, you know, to, oh, no, you shouldn't have said that. Oh, no, you shouldn't have done it. But, but there's some grace. If that's my job, you're in luck because I've got to sleep, right? What's more is I'm not, my pea brain isn't going to be able to understand everything that you're doing. What's more is I don't know what you're thinking. So there's a whole manner of things that you can do that I won't know about and I won't be able to write down. But we recognize that that's not the case with the Lord. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. He knows our thoughts before we thank them. He knows all of our sin. So as we think about navigating the waters of our culture, first we need to recognize the depths of our sin. We need to recognize that, that we cannot stand before the Lord apart from His great loving kindness. Now we understand that the psalmist is looking forward to Christ, but he still has hope in Christ. And he's looking forward to Christ, and he, the, the word that he uses, the phrase that he uses, as a watchman is waiting for the morning. Well, in our position, we live in the understanding of what Christ has already accomplished. To, so to Psalm 130, we also add Romans 8.31. And this is when Paul is describing what Jesus has done, and then he gives a concluding rhetorical question. He says, what shall we say to these things? If Christ is for us, who can be against us? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Right? What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. So as the psalmist understands his sin, but knows that he's looking forward to the redemption that, that Christ will provide, we are, understand our sin and are looking back to the redemption that Christ has already accomplished. Well, what does that do for us? It's, it's the fact that we are a walking example of but God. It is, it is that though we are dead in, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we have now been made alive in Christ. So what do we look for? Quite frankly, we look for the return of the Lord. And we do so with the same eager anticipation as a watchman waits for the morning. Now, as we are, are looking for the Lord's return, we are secure in the knowledge that this culture might cancel us, this culture might reject us, this culture might say, you're worthless, or worse. But we are secure in the hands of the Lord. What does that allow us to do? That allows us to honor those in authority. doesn't mean that we always agree with them, but it does mean that we can honor them. It does mean that we can respect them as the ones the Lord has placed in authority over us. It means that as we object to, to the culture being pushed upon us, that we can stand on the Word of God where we don't have to make arguments against the culture, the Word does it for us. And it's an opportunity for us to direct those in authority over us to the one who is in authority over all. And as we wait for the Lord's return, it means that we 
don't have to be anxious about the outcomes of this life because we know that at his return, all will be made right. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider uh, your word, as we consider the demands your word places upon us, Lord, we recognize that it can be difficult. We recognize that in our own power it is impossible. We recognize that it is often confusing seeking to determine how best to navigate the difficult cultural waters we're in. But Lord, we also recognize that you have given us your spirit. That you have renewed us by your spirit. And that your spirit gives us comfort and help and strength to follow you. Even as we are surrounded by a culture that rejects you, and even as we must be committed to telling the truth, your truth, in love and kindness to it. Again, we pray all of this in the name of our Redeemer. Amen.